0: Hello and thank you for joining us. I'm David Davis, a senior advisor and consultant with Portland, who before 13 years in sports spent two periods of my life here, yes, where we are, at the Palace of Westminster a few months in the 1970s during one miners' strike, and several years in the 1980s, which included yet another miners' strike. Prime Ministers in those days were Ted Heath and then, of course, the late Lady Thatcher. But I was always fascinated by who were the younger MPs, who would be tomorrow's big beasts. I remember two young Labour MPs in the 1983 intake called Blair and Brown, And then in 1987 came of all things a namesake, David Davis, without the E, who's not quite father of the house these days after 34 years here, but who nobody I know has ever referred to as a here today, gone tomorrow politician. This is To The Point. So David Davis talks to David Davis, surely unique, must be. (laughs) Well, at least one of us spells it right. (laughs) (laughs) I was astounded to find out that you've actually been here under eight conservative leaders. I guess that's right. Yes, I I thought thought you were going to say prime minister, and that's that's not true. Even I'm not that old. (laughs) Yes, you're right. A large number of conservative leaders, that's true. So you're not quite part of the architecture and the furniture as I say, all these years, what are the moments? Are there two or three moments that stick in your mind of your time here? Oh gosh, I mean there are a large number, but the, uh, the the early ones tend to be more resonant. You know, the first uh, sort of astonishing moment was the evening or the afternoon when uh, Nigel Lawson resigned, and the reason it sticks in my mind is peculiar, because I was sitting in the smoking room. In those days, we still had a smoking room, and people did smoke in it. You know. uh, and it was packed with people, absolutely packed with people, uh, nearly all Tories, uh, all having a drink. It's sort of the early evening, sort of pub, really, if you like, of of sort of the Conservative pub of Parliament. And um, and suddenly the news came through that that Lawson had resigned. Now Lawson was uh, a sort of you know, the Tyrannosaurus Rex of politics in those days. He, he, I know exactly what you mean. He bestrode Parliament. You know, he was, everybody was in awe of his intellect and his skill and his success as a Chancellor, you know. Um, and he was, other than Thatcher, the, the greatest creature in our party and he just resigned. And I thought there would be a terrible sort of depressive gloom fall over the the smoking room, which was, I say, 90% Tories in there. In practice, it was the exact reverse. It was a bit like a sort of the human equivalent. Of piranhas that you know, with blood in the water, (laughs) and you and I realized, I mean, afterwards, I realized how naive I'd been. People were calculating what the impact was, who was going to get promoted, who was going to step into their place. Did I, you know, whoever this was, have a chance myself? It was, it was sort of turbulence, political terms I'd never seen before. And what did that teach you about? Life in the Tory party, life in parliament. Well, the biggest single thing is you have to calculate everybody's own individual view. And of course, within that, there is that any... a bit cynical. Yeah, I'm afraid it is. Um, but, but, but individual view isn't necessarily their own, their own self-interest, you know. Um, in that case, it plainly was well, a lot of people who <laughs> saw opportunities. Uh, and I say, I was, I was, actually slightly shocked at the time. I was a naive young man. Um, but the but but you have to capture kind of everybody's viewpoint and and work out where everybody's coming from. So <clears throat> I don't know. Um, a couple of my friends on the Labour benches in the succeeding years, not necessarily then, but were people like Tony Benn and Tam L, who would have I picked them out because they had unique perspectives. Completely different from everybody else, you know, in, in their different ways. And then there will be, uh, great characters of the house that people didn't really know outside. I don't know if you remember Eric Forth, who was. Of course a, I do. A great. Parliament, Very you know. well dressed. You used to wear <laughs> a three-piece suit. There's this boy from a boy from a, a Glasgow tenement. Yes, in his three-piece suit and his incredibly loud tie of one sort or another. You know, completely tasteless ties. I have ones. It's my, it's my aid memoir to him now. But the um, so you, know, you, you you basically start to realise that people's perspectives are by no means predictable, uh, and that tells you something else. It means that you can't easily. Um, you, your profession, who had in sort of five minutes putting together a report at the end of the day, and an almost impossible job, and frankly, almost always got it wrong when they tried to predict what was going to happen in Parliament. It's very, very difficult to do. Um And this sort of became important, oh, literally only about a year later, when Margaret Thatcher herself fell, because I forecast at the time as a backbencher, I forecast the the vote that actually brought her down when she only won by she was four votes short of what she needed she needed a super majority because mm-hmm. of the rules in those days and she was four votes short of it. and they did that by sitting down and dividing the tory party into groups and saying where's their interest you know are they in the north of england do they have a community charge problem? are they do they have an issue over europe do they have an issue over that and it was the beginning of my trying to actually understand and analyze my colleagues A lot's been made of your background, not a traditional Tory, brought up by your mother and your grandparents. Mm -hmm. Grandpa was a CP, a Communist Party supporter, remember? Your father was Welsh and you met him once. Mm -hmm. Uh, In London, you lived in a council flat. Mm -hmm. What I wondered was... Council house. Council house. Mm -hmm. Was it it, uh, a happy upbringing? Yeah, generally. Um, I mean, the... Yeah, you're always at risk of halcyon days memories, but uh, being brought up my grandparents initially was in a, a prefab. I don't know if you remember what a prefab right. was, but these were built basically... I'm as, as old as that. Asbestos buildings, and where a stick of bombs have gone down the street and obliterated the street, mm-hmm. they just bulldoze it flat and sit these little rectangular asbestos single-story houses on them, like bungalows, basically flat-top bungalows. Uh, you know, Today, people recoil at living in the of building. I don't even, didn't even think of a problem. I, I, I remember that as wonderful times because our little prefab sat in a large area ground because there had been a house there before, and the end of my garden was the Roman walls of York. So that, you know, it's a sort of, as a playground, it's, you can't get better, really. And it was happy. And it was happy. Yes, of course it was. I mean, it got stressful later <clears throat> when I was about six. 17, 18, because my, son, I didn't get on with my stepfather terribly well. Um, uh, and that was my fault, not his. And why? Um, well, you know, we, we, we conflicted like two alpha males in the same place, right? That's the first thing. Um, and I didn't really understand. And my grandfather actually really illuminated this to me with one sentence. He said, David, you have to remember that your father, as he called him, you know, stepfather, um, for him, you represent the other man in your mother's life. It was a brilliant insight, an absolutely bloody brilliant insight. You know, and you know, this was I mean, he told me this after I'd left home. <clears throat> you know, I mean, I left home on the day before my first A-level. Uh, and just walked the streets of London. So I had nowhere else to live at that time. And where did you seek refuge? Eventually, I've had a friend of my mother's, uh, will, I called her aunt. She was yeah. no relation at all, but she'd known my father. She was also Welsh. And I rang her up and said, can you give me a bed or a sofa to lie? And that's what I did for the next year while, I, you know. I was fascinated by you You had a TA, a Territorial Army career, over several years, early on, as I understand it, to earn money to retake your exams. Well, yeah, partly that, and just to get through, really, to get by. Was that I, I, mean, I, I, worked, I worked for a year after school, um, uh, after I made a mess of the, the exams, and... Uh, then I, uh, and in that time, uh, I, I joined, I joined the TA, probably for a few years, not many years. And, um, part of it was money. Part of it was a certain amount of glamour. Nobody had ever heard of the regiment. And, uh, it was quite amusing from that point of view. Uh, this was the artist rifle. Yeah, the artist Rifles, the 21 SAS, as is also known. And, you know, you had to pass a test that I think the pass rate was about 8%, you know, and you got. What do you have to do? Oh. Enormous long marches at great speed, carrying huge loads over mountains. And things, yeah. You know? And, you know, every few years somebody would die on it. I mean, it was quite hard work, um, quite stressful. Um, but you were the 8%, part of the 8%. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then, you know, you've got, you've got parachuting and you've got a whole load of other interesting things to do after that. You know? And what did that teach you that was useful for you, firstly, in your business life? What was it? What did that teach you for your business life, if anything? Not so much business. I mean, it, it taught me, I mean, the world is full of characteristics which break 95 5 or 92 8, if you like. You know, as I said somewhere between 5 and 10% of people could get through this course who were determined enough to do it. Uh, but later on, you also found in other areas, uh, and this is sort of important in politics, that sometimes only five 5 to 10% of people are willing to stand up to oppressive authority whether in dictatorships or even in normal life or even in businesses yeah um why whistleblowers are such a small number you know i mean it it basically you admire whistleblowers yes always no 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 No. no, not always i mean whistleblowers are often very strange people but i was trying to protect them because i think they fulfill a huge function uh, you know enormous function Uh, i mean transparency in society is incredibly important um but that that distribution of character, the, hu- the human race is made up of a very wide dispersion of all sorts of things—abilities and, and, and approaches and so on and attitudes—but in all of them, there's a sort of small group who are very, very much more important than their than their numerical size. You know, whether whether it's a courage or the determination or the idiosyncrasy. You know, um, and today's normal middle of the road person could be yesterday's or tomorrow's. Uh, whistleblower, standout rebel, leader, Margaret Thatcher, Tony Benn—they're all part of that. I mean, the the real driving forces of humanity are different in ways which sometimes is great and sometimes is terrible. You know, and it just depends on the depends on the era and the circumstance. You got into it ultimately. You. you... Passed your exams, mm-hmm. you got into a business career. Mm. Particularly, you you spent a, a lot of years at Tate and Lyle, yeah. didn't you? Yeah. Now, how how influential was that in your in your development? Um, oh, pretty. I mean, again, this is like like so much of my life it's sort of lucky breaks, really. And um, I finished business school, London Business School. I mean. Ranked, I think, the best business school in the world in in, in some measures, um, and most of my colleagues was go, were going off to work for consultancies or banks. You know, I don't want to do that. I want to actually learn what it's like on the ground floor. I want to sort of get some gritty some grit under my nails, if you like. Um, so I looked around for a company to work for, and I found a, a transport company. I thought, oh, that's perfect. You know, <clears> because Drivers are, we're talking about idiosyncratic people. Drivers are fairly independent by nature. That's why they become, HGV drivers and so on. Um, and, you know, when one of them gets promoted to foreman is even more, uh, self-willed. When he gets to be a, 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 a depot manager is even more self-willed. So it's a very individualistic profession, right? And I liked it for that reason. It's also not particularly sophisticated. You know, this is, this is, this is not, you know, writing high, high profile software. You know, it's, yeah. this is, uh, and, uh, and I joined that, and only after I'd actually done the interview and been offered the job, I realised it was a subsidiary of Tate and Lyle, you know, um, and I arrived there, and again, lucky break. The day I arrive, the chief executive of the company is fired because they'd made losses in the in the year that had just finished, you see, uh, and that becomes a surprise, and so he was replaced by the man who was Tate and Lyle's troubleshooter. He was the one they always put in charge of a loss-making <clears throat> company to, to turn it around. And so I, the day I arrived, I get called in, or the, the day after I arrived, I get called in by this guy called Jim Scott, who became a sort of mentor of mine. And his first question is, right, what would you do to fix this company? <laughs> <Yeah>. You didn't only mean that in a day. Huh? You'd only been there, there a day. I've been there one day, you <clears throat> know. Um, and, uh, you know, there, I, there I am from a good business school with a good degree in that and post-grad degree and, and, um, and I said, well, I said, I've only been here a day. I said, but can I come back and give you an answer in a week? And he laughed at that. <laughs> a mixture of modesty and arrogance in equal proportion. You know. and, um, uh, and a week later, I came back and said, Look, I will do this. I'd, take, I'd create a control system over these areas, have a monthly control meeting with each of these guys. I will brief you every month on what's gone wrong, what needs to be corrected. Um, I can do that within six days of the month end uh and um let's see how we get on and he said he liked the idea so i did that and i became his right hand his sort of intellectual right hand even though i was the most junior person in the company and you had 17 years in business uh 15 years 15 years years, was it yeah Yeah. um um, uh and uh what happened at that sort of finish the the sort of shaggy dog story is that I went with him to another company which he was turning around as well as his finance director at that point. And then he became ill. And I then became the company's troubleshooter. So I got sent to all the difficult areas. And my joke always was, you know, I was half the time I was a company strategist and I'd tell them not to buy this or not to buy that. They would then ignore my advice and then a year later send me to fix it. (laughs) And and it's sort of true. It happened three times. And so I was dead lucky. So I ended up on the board in my mid-30s, you know. So yeah, which nobody, nobody did. I mean, this was a yeah. traditional FTSE One Hundred, big international giant company in those days. Um, you know, with Lord Jellicoe as the chairman and so on, and uh, and I ended up on the board. Yeah. So why does someone so imbued in business, as you, or having had such a interesting, stimulating fifteen years, throw it all up for politics? A hmm. uh, long family history of psychiatric instability, I reckon. <laughs> but, the, but the, I mean, the real reason was twofold. Number one was, remember, I had been a student leader early on when mm-hmm. Margaret Thatcher was the. It was unusual uh, to be a Tory at university. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, including was, Warwick the University. I, the reason I became the, the national chairman of the Conservative Students was I was at Warwick, which was pretty much the most revolutionary university exactly. in the country I remember it. up there with LSE. I mean, the two of them would vie with each other. And I was basically the only Tory there. Well, no one, that's unfair. There were about 20 of us. But, but I was the best-known Tory there, you know. and You were the only no, known Tory there, well, were you? Were you possibly? I don't know. Uh, no, but, uh, but, you know, but, but I, I would make... I mean, although I've got a lot of... Civil libertarian and <coughs> anti-imperialist arms to my character, if you like. Mm. I didn't like the the city and the the break oh, uh, or yeah, the, bre- break. the break up of of the of an institution which was which was an important institution, the university. So so I fought that corner, and that's how I, that's how I sort of came to prominence in, mm. in, in early prominence in Tory Party. Anyway, Thatcher was the education secretary at the time. Yeah. So when when I'm, a, I'm out in Canada, I think in the early uh, in the early eighties, and I look back at what was happening, all the, you know, the minor strike, all that sort of stuff. And I thought, in the words of the typing test, now is time for all good men to come to the aid of the party. You know, um, she was clearly, you know, nobody knew in 1980, and 81 that she was going to be the success she was. It was pre right. Falklands. Pre Falklands, pre conclusion of the minor strike. Yeah. You know, when it was all going on, you know, there was, there was mm. a lot of, you know, and, and even after Falklands, you know, there were times when she didn't think she'd survive the day. Yeah. You know, they, when Heseltine walked out, for example, you know, she wasn't at all sure she would still be Prime Minister by the end of the week, really, and and she told some people that on the day. Mm. Um, so, you know, so it was, it was never quite as obvious. I mean, you know, history's obvious with hindsight, you know. It was never quite as obvious she was going to win, so I thought time to come back and help. And that was really it, you know. And I knew I was throwing a lot of money away. I mean... Um, and you did throw a lot of money yeah, away. Yeah, I mean, about a year or two after I'd come here, my subordinates took me out to dinner and they were all earning quite a lot of money. I, I, I won't, I won't uh, highlight their tax returns, but, but they were already quite, quite a lot more than I was, right? And one of them said to me, he said, why are you doing... a question, why are you doing this? He said, you know, you work in a Gothic slum You've got no privacy. Your pay is ridiculous. You know my yeah. right standards of what I knew yeah. used to be earning. Um, he said, "And and and, and you know, what can you do with it? You know, you're powerless." And so I told him a couple of stories. One was about uh, leading a campaign to bring a thing called the National Doc Labour Scheme, to him, and it was the last yeah. great Thatcherite deregulation, and it had a it was fantastically successful. But I had to sort of bully her into doing it because mm-hmm. she was nervous of. Of, the Dockers had made her nervous during the miners' strike, when they went out on a wildcat strike. The only time she thought she might lose, apparently. And so I had to push her into doing that. So that was one thing. Probably created hundreds of thousands, or at least 800,000 jobs. That one change. And the second one was a rebellion I had on the what was called eyes and teeth in those days, doing away with the free eyesight test. And there's a disease called glaucoma, which makes you blind. 88% of glaucoma, if it's not discovered early enough, and 88% of glaucomas were discovered by the little air pop test mm-hmm. you take when you go to mm-hmm. have your eyesight tested. And I thought, well, if, if this, if charging for this makes 10% of people not go for their eyesight test. And so you cut the number of people detected by 10%, <clears throat> that's 2,000 people's eyesight a year. And I won that battle too. And so, and so, because now, if, when you turn 40, if anybody in your family's got glaucoma, you get a letter telling you you got a free free eyesight test, you know. Now, the, and I just told this story to the, to my team, mm. and they said, "We give in. You're right." You know. So your motive was to change lives. Mm. Oh. No question that's about that. That's why everybody comes here. I mean, you know, I know politicians get terrible rap. Yeah, but and, and I think many of them maybe earn it because when they come here, they change a bit. But mm. but when they first come here, that's generally what they're what they're trying to do. What would you say to somebody in business? david davis of this generation mm. today who's had quite a good career over 10 15 20 years and is attracted to parliament but doesn't want the scrutiny doesn't want the the day-to-day scrutiny and and the pay and all the rest of it all those problems what would you say to that person well if you worry about that don't do it is what i'd say i mean in fact i mean 20, I mean, if you can imagine, somebody's well known as I am, uh, youngsters come to me all the time. So how do I become an MP? You know, and, and up until about 15, 20 years ago, I used to give the, I used to sit down with them and walk them through all the steps and you have, what you have to do. I mean, I had, again, I had lucky breaks getting in here. I got the first seat I applied for. Um, and it was comparatively, uh, well, it was a very Tory seat. Um, and, uh, but today I just say don't. I just say don't. Um, and I don't really mean don't. I'm just making sure they really, really, really want to do it. Because if you don't really, really, really want to do it, it will destroy you. It will, it will make your life miserable because you're probably the average MP lasts about eight years, you know, and I've been. Not old. 34. No, you know, if you've got, if you've got a very safe seat for your party, you'll still come under pressure and it will go up and down. But, you know, but, but, but the average, I think, the average life in MP is about eight years, and and some are much shorter. And you know, being an MP doesn't make you employable anywhere else. It reduces your employability elsewhere. So unless you've already had your career um, and you've made your money or whatever, uh, or, or you're in a profession where you can go back, like <clears> lawyer, <throat> just just drop drop everything, and go back to that. Uh, I would say you've got to be willing to make a pretty big sacrifice. I was going to ask you about the happiest time of those 34 years here. And I'm going to ask you about your time as chairman of the Public Accounts uh-huh. Committee. Because uh-huh. it appeared to an outsider that, that you were dealing with business. Mm. You were dealing with all sorts of business. Mm. And you seem to be, in your element, as chairman of a select committee, perhaps happier than you were, I don't know, in some of the much bigger jobs you did later. Is that right? Um, happy is probably the wrong word. I'm 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 pretty happy whatever I'm doing. I mean, it's one of the one of my quir- one of my char- uh, my character quirk. I mean, I was talking about people's character quirks earlier. My character quirk is I don't really give a damn uh, about what the title is. I enjoy the task, right? Mm-hmm. And that's just me. I mean, it's, a, it's not a virtue or vice. It's just me. Um, well, but but the public accountability meeting was a little different because I set my sights on it. I don't normally say, right? This, I want to be chancellor. I want to be this. Or I want to be that. Or I want to be Brexit secretary. That's not my style. In fact, I was surprised when I'd make breakfast Brexit secretary. Um, but this one, I looked at it, and the Public Accounts Committee has been around since Gladstone. And I thought this committee is not doing all it can do. Uh, you have s- roughly seven hundred. People working for you in the National Audit Office, you basically got your own department in effect, unlike any other select committee. And they will investigate anything. And it used to be they investigated for the economy. In other words, did you overspend? Right. Mm-hmm. And when I took it over, I went to see them and I said, I want you to worry about effectiveness just as much, just as much about uh, as you do about economy. So when you look at, I don't know, something like, um, well, almost any subject, uh, I want to know, you know, how well is the government delivering its policy, you know? So we covered everything from um, whether people who had coin meters were getting a bad deal through to hospital-acquired infectious diseases, through to whether this weapon system worked, through and, and on, you know, right across government, every single department of government. Um, uh, and I knew I could do that with it. And it was quite funny because... Essentially, uh, William Hague asked me to, I don't know, I forgot which department he asked me to serve in now, but anyway, he asked me to serve in some department. And, and I said no. And the reason I said no was we were, you know, the party was shrunken to next to nothing. And I had, uh, and I didn't think they were going to do a very good job. And to be honest, they didn't. Um, and he was party leader number three, by the way, that you served might, in your time. Here. Right, yeah. <laughs> and, and the, and the uh, I mean, he was a bright, bright man, don't get me wrong. Yeah, sure. a very, very clever man and a, and a great speaker. But I just didn't think the party was going to make much of a dent in Blair. Um, but I knew that I could make the Public Accounts Committee hold the government to account. Uh, and so when I, when the, the chief whip, the Tory party called me and said, well, you know, you, why have you turned us down? You know, because it's him and made the offer. He said, why, yeah. You know, I said, look, I, I don't want to do it. He said, but you can't just sit on the back benches. And I said, I, don't know, I was a bit, to be honest, I was a bit tricky. I said, well, look, if you really want me to do something, I'll chair the public accounts committee for you. And his response was indicative. He said, oh, would you be willing to do that? You know. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that's when you were that's that changed history in itself I why, yeah i think it did i mean in many ways lots and lots of things i mean somebody when i stood down from it to to, to join duncan smith's front bench which i did under a bit of pressure frankly um i think it was the guardian ran a he was page. leader number four by the way <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're going through and and he um, and the Guardian, David Henke, I think the Guardian wrote a, a, a 4 page sort of interview. Really, first paragraph of which was something like, "Is this man mad? He's giving up a job where he made a thousand recommendations to government, which they've accepted 956 and carried out 840." That was it. Was, it was something I'm, I've probably got the numbers slightly wrong, but but it was it was of that order of magnitude. And it's right. I mean, it, it was the most useful, you know, uh, useful time. Uh, from that point of view. And it was, um, it, to be honest, it was pretty low stress. Uh, I mean, the, 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 downside of it was, you know, you actually need a bit of stress, really. Um, and certainly I do. Uh, and if anything, it was a bit too comfortable for me, <laughs> but, but it was, but it was great fun. Uh, it was very functional. It's probably the most useful five years of my life. I don't want, I want beginning to end. I mean, that's, Fascinating in itself. I don't want to spend hours talking about something called Brexit in Europe. Uh-huh. And those things, but two things I would ask: you were one of the early people, twenty twelve, I think, mm. who said we want a referendum. Mm. Did you honestly believe it would ever happen in your lifetime? Yeah, yeah. I thought it was inevitable, actually. Um, uh, and actually, it's not. It's not known. This is, a, I guess, it's a piece of news. Um, I first raised the request for a referendum in 1996 inside government when I was Europe minister. And, uh, one of the things that used to happen in those days is the, the Royal Flight would fly us around Europe to do various meetings. And while I'd waited for the aircraft to refuel, I'd sit in the, the sort of the VIP transit lounge where they put you normally by yourself. And I would, I would write very often. I would just write what we, what we, what the office used to call my private office used to call my transit lounge notes. <laughs> and it would just be a one side of a sheet. I'd write on A four, one side of a sheet of paper, and I'd write a note to Douglas Hurd, who was my boss at the time. And I would say, why don't we do this? What about that? And just you know, sort of um, off the wall notes. And one of them was, why don't we have a referendum, either on the euro or on membership? Mm-hmm. One or the other. Right? So this was ninety six. Ninety six. Ninety six. Yeah, or well, earlier maybe, ninety five, maybe. But it was in the nineties. was I was I was in that job from ninety three, ninety two or three, to ninety seven. So it's in that bracket. And I guess actually you're right, it might be earlier because it was um it was definitely Douglas Heard and he was he retired a little earlier. Uh, Did 90. he respond? Oh, yeah. It was, it was very funny. The next morning, we came and we had our what we call prayers, you know, sort of yeah. ministers sit around and civil servants. and all sorts of people there like Michael Jay, people who are well-known people now. And um, uh, we, I talked through the argument with him. He said, talk about this. So I talked through the argument and, uh, and I said, you know, we need to make a decision as to our future in this institution. Do we want to be in the Euro? Do we want to be in the European Union at all? What should we do? And really, we ought to put it to people because it's a big constitutional question. It's, it's a, frankly, Douglas is above our pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> the line I used. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and to my surprise, you know, the first thing I went backwards and about which one we should, should we, you know, I, I'm astonished to tell you that even some of the very, very pro-European civil servants were sort of engaged in this. Uh, and then uh, which one should we go for? And, uh, and then he ended up saying, well, why not both? Why not? He said, why not both barrels, was his phrase. Anyway, why not both barrels? And he then had a meeting with um, John Major. It was a Sunday night supper, I think. And I think the people, that the dramatist person I were, Major, Hurd, Clark, Heseltine, <laughs> Malcolm Rifkin, and the chief whip, Richard Ryder. And I think... All pro-Europe? No, I think... I think Rifkind, well, Douglas argued for it, and he's a you know, very, very young man, but he argued for it. He thought it was a constitutionally sensible thing to do. Um, uh, I think Rifkind supported him, and I think Ryder supported him, but Clark and Heseltine, the two biggest heavyweights, really, uh, sort of persuaded Major not to do it. So that was... Major... Decided uh, what, you know, he yeah. thought about it. I mean, I think he, you know, he, like, like everything with John, John, take, John Major used to take everything from first principles. Absolutely everything from first principles. He's sometimes represented as not having a lot of principles himself. It's not true. It was just that he, he would argue everything from first principles. You know. uh, different to Thatcher, who would come at it with a very clear view, almost, yeah. almost from the first comma in the first sentence. You know. um, so and, and so it died. But that, that was the very first time I raised it. And, of course, I kept it quiet because I'm a you know, minister and you don't air these things outside. Forward all those years, yeah. and there you are, Secretary of State for Brexit. Yeah. I mean, was that, what was that experience like? What did that, did any of your experience from the past, any of your business, military experience ever come in useful? I mean, and there was the famous picture, wasn't there, of you sitting there, everybody else had... Piles of papers, and you didn't have any papers, mm, yeah. and that was a, a source of great fun for a lot of people in the yeah. media. Yeah. And what, what, what was the truth of that? Well, it's quite funny because we were, we were having a, a, a brief pre-meeting with with Barnier He writes about it in his book, by the way. Yeah. Uh, and he says I was unfairly treated. His words, which is quite funny and also naive on his part, because <laughs> these people who did it. Um, the, <laughs> yeah. and. If you if you're a cabinet, and a nothing new there then. Eh? Nothing new there. Nothing new there. <laughs> and, and if you're in cabinet and the photographers come in, you either put your papers away or at least close them, because you don't want a photograph of mm. negotiating strategy one hundred one or whatever you've got in your. Family. So that's the first thing. That's the first thing. You know, you you know, had had I had papers, I would put them away. But the second thing is, I didn't because I never carry papers. I mean, yeah. And my the whole way you do these things is you get them in. You've got to get them in your head. You're not re, you're not reading a text. Well, Michel might have been. I don't know. But but you you know you're not reading a text. when You go into a negotiation. If you haven't got the whole bloody thing in your head, you are going to fall down in the negotiation. You know. So so that was the, the sort. If you like the differential approach. But it was a deliberate game by his office. They that that photograph was taken and issued really before the end of the day. Complete with the the subtext, of, oh, he, you know he's not he's not doing his work, which is not true, of course. But the but yeah, you know, it was funny. It was I mean it, you, know, you 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 have to if you are dealing with Brussels, and partly here too. Um, every capital in Europe has its own echo chamber, you know, with things that things that get reinforced and things that don't. And in Brussels, it's a federalist sort of European federalist. Echo chamber, and anything that goes against that just doesn't happen. You know, it just gets blotted out. Um, and so, if you go to Brussels thinking you're going to get fair treatment, if you're going to negotiate departure, you know, you're kidding yourself. You know, and uh, uh, and that's that was the stance I took from the beginning. And it, it affected. It wasn't the only thing that affected it, but it affected the stance I took at the at the uh, press release press conferences. And I just took the view from the beginning: they're going to play hardball. What we have to do is be more reasonable than them. So I'm going to smile all the time, um, you know, be incredibly... And you're rather good at that, aren't you? Incredibly polite. You know. you, are, you are rather good at that. What? sort, of, sort, sort, sort of, of Smiling your way through it. Sort of great. I always say, one of the things I admire most in other people is grace under fire, you know. Mm-hmm. And I try to do the same myself. Not always, but you know, but as far as I can. But I just took the view that actually it was more than just my nature, which is to be very friendly and open and so on, uh, and and to smile quite a lot because I find life amusing. But the um, but the uh, but also as an explicit, determined pattern, because for other reasons we've given away too many cards at the beginning. I um, thought, uh, well, you know, we are now going to have to basically charm our way through this, so that when we come to the recrimination, which we will come to quite quickly. Uh, it's not our fault. No, that, was the, that was the thesis. I'm going to go back to the word underdog. Yeah. When you stood as party leader yeah. in the early against David Cameron, mm-hmm. you weren't, at the start, the underdog. No, no. no, no. I'm, I am really the underdog. You I? are. <laughs> so why didn't you win that? Um, partly because I was careless. Partly, I think, because he wanted it more than I did. Um, what do you mean he wanted it? After all your career, you didn't really want to be Tory leader. Is no. that what you're saying? It's, it's a question of how much. Well, I mean, obviously I stood, so I wanted to do it. Um, uh, and, well, there, there were a variety of reasons. Some of them, obviously, I made a bloody bad speech, Was one of them, you know. Um, but, uh, and that was, and that was because I was careless. I mean, you know, the speech wasn't written till the day before. It wasn't written by me. It should have been. I should have spent a week before the party company was writing it myself. Um, and so it was unrehearsed and it wasn't really me. You know? mm. Yeah. Silly mistake. Beginner's error, really. But, and what <laughs> did, from that experience, were you really upset? Were you hurt? Were you, did you get on with your life? He didn't happened. lie awake at night no, worrying about no, fact, what might have been. The same Simon Walters I was just talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of, I was on a train somewhere. I forgot where I was going now. But again, he came on. He came on the train to interview me. Yeah. You know, uh, for a couple of stops before he got to go back, and you know, you're not upset. You're not angry. I said, Well, why? You know, a lot of worse things in the world than this. You know, and if that's you'd that's the other, that's the thing you have been Tory leader, you've got to remember. You know, for all you know, MPs complain about you know this, that, and the other difficulties of their life. They are all privileged. Every single last one of them is a privileged member of society. If you'd won, if you'd become leader of the Conservative mm-hmm. Party, if you'd become Prime Minister. You'd have, what, how would history have changed? What wouldn't have happened? We'd had a referendum a bit earlier, presumably. Yeah, but but uh, well, wouldn't have had a coalition. Well, no, we would have had a coalition. You would have had a coalition. What about a coalition? Because remember, I mean, one of the reasons they could have a coalition was that the home affairs policy of the Tory Party in those days had been written by me a few years earlier, and it was pretty near identical to the Liberal home affairs policy. Um, uh, and I was quite close to Nick Clegg, actually. Uh, you may, people didn't really notice, but they didn't run a candidate against me and had my by-election because they agreed with me. So, um, so that would that of itself, no, it would have been a coalition. Uh, various things wouldn't have happened. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have had the tuition fees crisis. So the Liberals might have actually survived rather better than the next election. Um, I wouldn't have done that. There'd be massively greater, uh, emphasis on, uh, on social mobility. Com- the, this country's social mobility is a disgrace. When I went to, when we went to school, um, 20% of, of children went to grammar school. And that meant a significant number of working class kids went to grammar school. Today, I would really 6 7% go to grammar school, but they're all middle class. Mm. You know, parents move into the area to get into grammar school. They tutor their kids, you know. The, the ordinary kids are elbowed out, right? It's mm-hmm. so a massive emphasis on that, massive emphasis on that. A, a very different attitude to foreign affairs. Less, less propensity to go to war. Uh, much less. I mean, I, I managed to defeat Cameron once on an attempt on his early attempts to bomb Syria because basically cause I hadn't thought it through properly. You know, um, you know, if you go to war, you've got to have know what you're going to do and have a very limited aim. And before you start, um, foreign policy would have been more, more overtly global, you know much, much more. I would have I would have put much more money in the Foreign Office. We used to have one of the best Foreign Offices in the world. As we're sitting here speaking, there's a scandal because the Foreign Office couldn't even get the right number of Afghans out of uh, out of Afghanistan, right? Um, and, you know, there was a time when we had the best Foreign Office in the world, and I would have been working back towards that aim. You know, so there's a whole um, schooling would have been different. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, more grammar schools. You'd have well, no. I mean, you, you we're beyond the point which you'd replace the grammar schools, and and you know, in any, in frankly, if you did now, I mean, I think John Major talked about one grammar school in every city. It would be enough. You'd still, it would still just be a middle class enclave. Mm. That's the, that's that's the wrong point. The point is, we've got a lot of young kids, you know, white, black, Asian, no matter what they are. A lot of young kids now who basically are not achieving their potential, you know, and we're we're aggressively trying to get into university without making sure that their their school years actually de- deliver on their performance. There's a lot there too. So a whole load of things of that sort of nature. I mean, I would have done what um, what Ian Duncan Smith did with the universal credit. That was the right direction. i have probably gone further mm-hmm. um, uh, to make it work, put a bit more money into it. Um, I would have been much tougher on the banks after the financial crisis because that was relevant at the time. I In fact, I chaired um a uh, financial commission banking commission um, and saying pretty much that there's a lot more competition amongst the banks um, there's a whole series of individual things you know so the, the list is as long as you arm <laughs> so finally let's ask you this what would you do if you had your career again this this extraordinary life you know that's been in so many different areas but ultimately 34 years in this place mm. What would you have done differently if you had a chance? If there's one fundamental thing. Well, very little to the truth be told. You'd written that speech before before have, co- like the conference against Cameron. I would have written the speech in the summer rather than <laughs> like letting somebody else write it the day before. Yeah, of course that's sort of obvious stuff. But but in terms of overall very little different. You know, I mean, you wouldn't look, have stayed in in business? No. No, 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 no. I mean, more satisfying in I, politics. I, I, I've got look yeah, I'm not rich, but I've got enough money. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, the 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 time I need money, it's money for my disabled grandchild. It's money for for other people. It's not really for me, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know. And anyway, you know, I have a couple of outside interests. I can earn what most people think is a lot of money doing that. Um, uh, so, so don't worry about that. Uh, and that's not a big driver. You know, if I wanted to have been a millionaire, I would have stayed on and become chairman of the same like, and the rest of it. But that, that's that's by the by. Um the quirk, I think I mentioned earlier in my character, is I like doing things with a given outcome, you know. And it's the outcome that matters to me always. Uh, I don't care about the job. You know, I don't care about the honours. I don't care about the, the job title, I mean. I don't care about the honours. Um, I don't need much power. You know, I can I can influence things quite well in, in a way. And that's a sort of my prime skill um uh and the freedom to apply it to what you want to apply it to is pretty important um right back at the beginning of the parliamentary career as i said with you know on the one hand a big Thatcherite reform which the left would squirm about and squeal about on the other hand a healthcare reform, which the left will be entirely on side about, you know, and then and then so they're not a single ideology, they're not a single strand. It's just what strikes me as the worst problem at the time, you know. Today, as we speak, I'm going to go off and argue against. I'll fail today, but uh, but not necessarily in the longer run. Uh, I'm going to argue against taking people's citizenship away from them, and then later on, I'm going to argue against. Uh, sending asylum seekers to Ghana or wherever it is that we end, we end up bribing to take our people, um, because they're barbaric uh, policies, and so I'll argue against them of the government of you support. The government, of the, support. government of the, day, the Tory Party government today, you know, and you know, just as I argued against and won uh, the argument about not allowing us to have a statute of limitations if our soldiers murder people or torture people abroad. You know, I won that. It's why the fact we didn't have any votes in the Commons on it. I won it in the Lord. So so, so the, the, the point being, this is a formidable privilege. You know, very, very few people have it and use it anyway. And, uh, you know, why should I want to change that? Any ambitions left? To do more of that, you know. And look, when I've been in government... Essentially, twice, in two periods of my career, right? And in those, I did things which altered the course of history. On one, I- on one issue at the time, you know. Um, so even even at, even at Brexit, the, the the real thing I did there was resign, because that forced a change of leadership, which forced the Brexit strategy yeah. to change, and that was what that was the purpose of it. Um, and this, it's all about purpose. You know, and sometimes the purpose is on the front bench and sometimes it's best served by that and sometimes it's served by being on the back bench. And I, I may shock you by saying actually it's more often served by being on the back bench. You asked the question about about money and business. After that little meeting I had with my my erstwhile direct employees, my direct subordinates, you know I thought well they've got a sort of point. And so I have an, I have an institution I, 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 as a personal institution. Every year, roughly the last Friday of July, it's the, the, the last Friday of term, if you like, um, before before Parliament goes down for the recess, I go and sit in my study in Yorkshire and I take uh, a particular bottle of whiskey, which I've been using because I only drink one glass of it, um, for about a dozen years, and I sit down with an A4 sheet of paper and I draw a line down the middle, right? And I write £500,000 across the top, which is what I guessed I could have earned if I'd stayed out in business in a year, right? And uh, I write down on the piece of paper what I have done that year, and on the other side, I write whether somebody else could have done it, right? So on the back benches, generally speaking, there's nobody else who would have done could or would have done it. In government, very often, somebody else would have done the same thing. Um, and I basically work out whether I passed my five hundred thousand test. Has what I've done that year been worth half a million quid? How many years have you got? When, I'm not, in, when I'm not in government, eight out of ten, it's 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 a worthwhile exercise. And in government, never, almost, <laughs> um, almost, because somebody else would do it. I mean, it was worth it when I resigned from the, as Brexit secretary, right? Yeah. Because that alter the direction of history. We always ask a final, final question. Uh-huh. How do you relax in your life? <laughs> Has it changed? Is it always the same? Do you sit at home? You have this glass of whiskey? that's no, once a once-a-year occasion. I don't drink okay. much. But I the, don't drink very much whiskey. I like my wine. Yeah. Um, the uh, I don't really. I mean, look, my job... You don't relax? Not really. My job is fun. You know, I mean, I can't, I can no longer, because I, I have bursitis in the shoulders, I can't, I can't rock climb anymore, can't mountaineer, right? Um, uh, and for the last year or so, I haven't, well, I, I haven't for a couple of years because of COVID, but also before then for a year, I haven't been able to fly much. I mean, my sports uh, are rock climbing, um, uh, skiing, mountain skiing, more general mountaineering, and hill walking. Uh, flying light aircraft and so on. Now, for various reasons, I'm going to do many of those. Um, but but they're, but they're not relaxing oh. sports, really. Um, and your life hasn't been relaxing? Well, it sort of is. Um, <laughs> it's hard to explain. Not many people would agree with that, though. What? That it's been relaxing. It has been relaxed. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, look. <sighs> my resting pulse rate is 42, right? Yeah. 42 beats a day, right? That sort of says everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that, just my nature. I think that's lovely. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure.